I would say 99.9% of music directors are very encouraging and they want you to do well. Like no one wants you to go in and fail. So when they come to you after the show and they say, Hey, can I just give you a couple of notes? You say yes. And like, you know, what can I fix? What do you need? And, and they'll tell you where it is. Reassure them because they're doing it not only for you, but they're doing it to make sure that their show is, is well, is in good hands with you playing drums and it's all constructive criticism. And if you can't take constructive criticism as a musician, then your teachers were way too nice to you growing up. Like, like you, you should be able to handle that. Thank you for joining the Broadway drumming one one podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Joshua Priest. Thank you for joining me. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you, Clayton. First question I have to ask of you is, how did you land the job as drummer for Beetlejuice? Uh, you know, I started subbing it right from the get-go at the Winter Garden a couple of years ago, and I took over Shannon's leave of absence that fall for a couple months, and then he decided to leave this summer to go do Kimberly Akimbo, and it just it just so happened that I, I was asked to do it, and I was very grateful and humbled and. Uh, I'm enjoying it. First one. How'd you connect with Shannon? Shannon, uh, I was doing, I was supposed to be doing a tour of The Bodyguard, the musical, and I started it at Paper Mill. um, And then it was supposed to tour for like six months and then come into the city. So I decided to do it. Uh, I left very early on once the tour started because it just wasn't for me. I was kind of done touring. That was my fourth tour. And I decided I just wanted to be home. Um, and two people after me, so there was Joe McCarthy. And then after Joe was Shannon. And Shannon learned my book from the board recordings at Paper Mill. So he and I got together when he started learning that. And he had some questions. And and then when he got back to the city, uh, we got together and we'd never met and just kind of hit it off and kept in touch until uh, Beetlejuice started. So small world. It's a lot of who you know. It's a lot of who you know. It's also about what you know. Going back, just learning about Joshua Priest, the, the drummer and, and human being. You were born in, let me guess, Colorado? Melbourne, Florida. Oh, man, that's wrong. Uh, you went to you went to you got your master's degree in Colorado. I got my master's in Colorado. Yep. So Melbourne, Florida, you said. Mm-hmm. You have a musical family. Uh, my mom's side, uh, her uncles uh, are very musical, but my parents don't play. My sisters took piano and stuff, but. Um, no, I was the only one in the immediate family that, that decided to pursue music. And what got you into playing drums? My brother 
who is uh, four years older than me, was in a band in middle school. And I remember he brought home a marching snare. And I was just, I loved it. I mean, there's a picture of me. And I think the thing is from my stomach down below my knees, it's so tall because I was so short back then. Uh, and that's just what I wanted to do. You got a practice pad or did you mentally start taking drum lessons or what was the next step? I started band in seventh grade. And then in eighth grade, I started taking lessons. Was there a big band in Florida? Because I know down in down below the Mason-Dixon line, as they used to say, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot more marching bands. And I, it's funny, I was looking at some videos of me in my college marching band the other day. And we were good, but not nearly as good as these, these other Southern uh, HBCU drum sections and DCI drum sections. I mean, it's just a whole other level. Were you uh, surrounded by that kind of competition? Absolutely. Uh, the county I grew up in, Brevard County, um, had a huge uh, K through 12 music program. They had some of the best teachers in the state. Um, and, you know, they all worked together to make sure that everyone um, had these opportunities and everyone was, was learning. Uh, at the same level and getting to be pushed to do all county and all state, tri-state and all these things. And they were just really, really great educators. They cared about people pursuing music beyond just high school, just beyond getting that credit. They wanted people to keep going. And, and I think that that stood out. So you're playing in the marching band in junior high and, and high school? Mm-hmm. Yep, we had both. When did you start playing drum set? Uh, oddly enough, I didn't start till college. And I can remember I auditioned for jazz band in high school. And I did not get it. It was awful. I, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. I, I didn't have the coordination. I, I was very shy. I, um, you remember what you did wrong? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I can remember uh, we, the high school went and played at the senior center, the, the local senior center, and the regular drummer couldn't make it. Uh, so I usually played percussion and vibraphone, and the band director, she said, well, you have to play today. I'm like, okay, let's, let's figure it out. And Clayton, I did not even know how to put together a hi-hat stand. <laughs> So I pulled out the clutch and I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And so I had to have one of the trombone players come over and show me how to put it together. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, when I got to college, I had an incredible drum set teacher and uh, he, he got me on the right track. So did you have, you, you, I guess, always knew you wanted to go to college for music or did you go to college yeah. for music? Okay. I did, yeah. And where did you go, and why did you choose that college? I went to a liberal arts school called Rollins, and it's in Orlando. And I went there because it was between that and University of Miami. And I went to Rollins because it was closer to home. It was only an, an hour and 15-minute drive. And Orlando had plenty of opportunities to work. Um, 
my high school teacher went there and I already knew the percussion and drum set teacher at Rollins. So it kind of felt like a very easy transition from high school to college. Uh, it was a small program. There was only 10 percussionists and the, the music school itself only had maybe 115 kids total. Wow. Very Yeah. Just a small little school. And it presented me the opportunity to uh, go out and work and, and take gigs right away and, and learn how to be a professional from the get go. So did you have a drum set in high school? No, I had a marimba. <laughs> really? Yep. Your parents yep, bought you a marimba? Yeah, I had a four and a third octave marimba. Women must have thought you were like, sexy. Look at that guy with the marimba. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little did I know it doesn't pay the bill. <laughs> I want to be a marimbist. Is that what? <laughs> oh, man. So yeah. did you want you you wanted to go to college for music? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to uh, be when you grow <laughs> when you quote unquote grew up? No, no <laughs> clue. I, I I thought that you could just freelance and just play a bunch of different random gigs, and I was like, okay, this is great. This is this is what I'll do. And I had no clue about Broadway at the time. I had I had done some shows just because it was offered to me and it was a gig. Um, but I, I had no interest in any musical theater at that point. What was your first, uh, introduction to Broadway or musicals in general? Um, in high school, I played at, uh, they have a Cocoa village playhouse. It's kind of a historic place in Brevard County. And I did some stuff there. And I think my first show was wizard of Oz. And then I did a chorus line and a couple of things. And I was like, okay, I, this is fun. But I still wasn't, I, I wasn't sold. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Still wanted to be that marimbist. <laughs> still wanted to be a marimbist. <laughs> so you went to college and you graduated and you're like, you know what, I, I, I need more education. And why did you choose uh, to go to Colorado for graduate school? Um, I actually... After I graduated, I took two years off and I became a band director. And I was a high school band and orchestra director, um, which was wild. Uh, the things we do. And it was great. You know, I, I love to teach. And uh, but it wasn't for me. It was a whole mess with some inner politics. And I decided, OK, I, I really should go back to school because I didn't know what else to do. So I applied to schools where I wanted to live. I didn't know anything about the program. So like, I mean, this is bad. Like I applied to Hawaii. I applied to Colorado, um, Tulane and New Orleans. Like I was like, all right, I just want to live in these places and see what it's like. And um, Colorado was the first to get back to me. And they offered me a teaching assistantship. And I was like, great. That's it. The University of Colorado is where? What uh, city? Boulder, which is about 30 minutes west of Denver. Tell me about Colorado and what it was like living. It was a great experience in that I came from a small school for my undergrad. And that school was very, um, was very much about technical and chops. 
uh, of course, like being musical is important, but we worked a lot on technique and chops. And then when I got to Colorado, I didn't know much about Doug, uh, Dr. Walter, the professor there. But when I got there, he is a world-class jazz vibraphone player and all-around percussionist. And his whole approach was to make every note sing, no matter if it's a 16th note, eighth note, quarter note, whatever. And it was a completely different approach. So it was a a nice balance uh, from my undergrad degree to my master's degree. And going to school there was very distracting because it's a beautiful place to live. I mean, you don't want to go inside because the weather is, it can get cold, but they have more days of sunshine than Florida. Really? And yep. And it's just a really, it was set right against the foothills. So you have the mountains behind you all the time. Yeah, it was really hard to be inside practicing. When you were in graduate school, did you have an idea that, you know what, I want to move to New York, L.A., or Nashville? Or did you have an idea, as, as the further that you're getting into your studies, were your ideas of where you wanted to land up uh, more focused? A little bit. I was torn between L.A. for the weather, uh, just because, I mean, who wouldn't want sunny weather year-round? Um and then New York, because I, I did start getting more into musicals uh, in grad school. And I met a director who was doing a production of Candide at the school. And I was playing it. And I was playing a couple books I combined. And his name is Larry Fuller. And he was a choreographer for uh, some Sondheim shows uh, back in the 60s and 70s. And he liked what I was doing. He asked if I wanted to do this for a living. He thought I would be good at it. And I kind of thought, yeah, I I would like to. And he put me in touch with a contractor and she said, graduate, like finish up your school because that was my first year. And she said, call me when you're done. And I did. I graduated in 2010. I called her and she said, I have a show. It goes out in September. And I was very lucky. And I started touring right away. And that was with Mamma Mia? That was with Mamma Mia. Two years. Did you have certain drum set players that were influences when you were in grad school or before? Uh, I was a huge Steve Jordan fan. Still am. Definitely. Just perfect pocket. And and that's just kind of what I want to do. It's just whenever I play... I don't have Weckle chops or anything insane. I just want to play a solid, a solid pocket. That's it. So no 30 second notes for you. Unless, unless required. Unless required. Correct. <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, what's that thing where you have the do not open break glass? What's the thing? Oh, yeah. In case of emergency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In case of emergency, break glass for 30 seconds. Just pull them out and then put it back in. (laughs) (laughs) Pull out the double kick just for that and then put it back. Yeah. Where did you hear about Steve Jordan? My teacher uh, in undergrad, Danny Gottlieb. um, What? Danny Gottlieb? That's cool. Yeah, he was my drum set teacher. Um, He was the man. Still is. Yeah, he's he's still the man. Um, (laughs) 
he did some work with the Blues Brothers, and that's kind of how I got introduced to that. And that's how I learned about Steve Jordan. Um, and then when he did that record with John Mayer and Pino Palladino, uh, that, well, what's that? Is it? Is what it do you think I live? Was? Is that what it's just yeah, called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that man. drum fill that he does at the very beginning of "Who Do You Think I Was." Uh. <laughs> and then it's just the same thing throughout the whole thing, which is steady and just killing. Oh, I love it. I'm with you on that. Yeah, and then like when he plays uh, "Gravity," uh, it's just just quarter notes. That's all it is. Man, that you can't beat that. You start to learn more and more about players. Like uh, you find bands you like listening to, and you start reading about the drummer and people that you didn't know play drums. I mean, for the longest time growing up in, until I really got into playing drums, like I didn't know Phil Collins was a drummer, you know, and you go back and like, you watch his early stuff with Genesis and you're like, man, yep. in, insane. I know you said Steve Jordan is one of your, your all time favorites. Who are some of your other ones? Growing up, my parents always listened to oldies. So everything from the fifties and sixties and, at the time, like as a kid, you don't really like you're drawn to drums and you kind of listen to it and you're like, oh, that's great. And you don't really understand who it is and the importance that they had. And then when I got into college, I'm like, okay, I should see like who these drummers are. And I, Ringo, I mean, he just, in my mind, he created like modern day rock and roll, just simple pop, simple rock. He just had such a good feel on the hi hat. And for me, like that wishy-washy hi-hat, that's I, that's gold for me. Uh, Charlie Watts with the Stones. And then there were just so many people that you didn't realize uh, recorded for hundreds and hundreds of singles and albums, like Hal Blaine of The Wrecking Crew and Gary Chester. And like these guys were on everything from the beach boys to the monkeys, the mamas and the papas. And, uh, they just went in there and they recorded hit after hit after hit. Uh, and yeah, just that, I guess the basis of rock and roll that that's really where my influences were. And then, you know, later on, like as your musical taste evolve, you listen to the who and you listen to pink Floyd and you listen to Zeppelin and you're like, okay, there's more to just uh, two and four on the snare and you know, straight A's on the hi-hat. So graduating from graduate school, doing the tour of Mamma Mia, was it a, a big learning curve to, to step right into a show and just get in and get on the train and just, just go? Yep. Uh, it was the last time the tour was going at Equity. So they actually had mostly new people they had a couple returning but the band was entirely new um and so a lot of us were kind of first time touring together so it was it was a great opportunity for everyone to kind of learn as we go so you did mama mia for two years then you did another tour it was it the a night with janice joplin uh i came to new york and i started subbing matilda and um 
I did a little mini tour of The Little Mermaid. They kind of revived that at Paper Mill. And I played the second half of that production there. And then we did, I think, four or five cities. Um, and that's how I got introduced to how we joined uh, was through Matilda. And thanks to Howie, he started recommending me to shows uh, that he was contracting as a sub. And I, I was able to get on a couple shows uh, thanks to him. Was uh, Matilda the first show that you subbed on in New York City? Uh, I did Mamma Mia. Oh, you subbed at Mamma Mia in New York? Mm-hmm. Was that after the tour? Yes. Oh, wow. So you met uh, Ray Marchica? Ray Marchica, who was a good friend of uh, Danny Gottlieb's, which is how we got introduced. Ah, okay. That's great. Then you start, you sub there, and then your name got around. Is that how you connected with Howie? Uh, I connected with Howie through David Holsenberg, who is the supervisor for Mamma Mia. And on one of the breaks from the tour, he said um, they were doing Ghost, the musical. He said, get in touch with Howie, and uh, you should meet him. And that's how I met Howie was through David. This business, it's just all about relationships. Tell me about your first time subbing on Mamma Mia. What did you do to prepare? Oh, you already knew the show, so I guess that was half the battle. But the way they triggered the click was just with the, uh, just on the pad. And it was live drums versus V drums. And that's where I started learning that you can play kind of as loud as you really want because they just want that presence. They don't want, uh, <clears throat> you know, you need to play loud enough so everything gets picked up. Um, it, it was a good experience. It was terrifying. Um, and I learned a lot as far as preparation because shortly before that, I took an audition and that was kind of my biggest fail of my career. Uh, I flew out from LA to New York to audition for the Book of Mormon tour, the first national. I was like, this is a great opportunity. And I was still young. I didn't know anything about subbing. So as far as like preparing music and learning the fills, learning the grooves, and worst of all, I didn't know what an SPD pad was because we didn't have it on tour and I didn't use it in grad school or anything. So I remember I was sitting in the room with everyone there and we start one of the first songs to play through. And I didn't know I had to trigger the click. It was on the SPD pad. They stopped. They're like, you didn't trigger the click. Where do you, where is it? They're like, it's pad number one on the SPD. It's like, oh, that's what all those numbers are in the music. (laughs) It was, it was the biggest bomb of my life. And it was the most humbling experience because I left feeling embarrassed. And I knew from that moment forward that I have to like 
really prepare. And I have to do a lot more homework than I think is required. So somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I want to be just like you have a show on Broadway and I want to start subbing because I want to get some experience. What are some of the things that you tell them to do? If you like what you hear on this show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.com. To continue producing the high-quality podcast you're listening to, publishing engaging newsletter content, and posting YouTube videos, we would appreciate any financial contributions you can make. At this time, we have no advertisers, and we'd like to keep it that way. Our staff is small, but growing. We can only produce the show with listener contributions from people like you. There are a couple of ways you can do that. You can sign up to be a monthly or annual subscriber at broadwaydrumming101.com. You can also contribute any amount you wish through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash broadwaydrumming101 or through Venmo at broadwaydrumming101. Or help keep us caffeinated by buying us a cup of coffee or a week's worth at buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. That's buymeacoffee.com forward slash BD101. We appreciate any support you can give. So somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I want to be just like you have a show on Broadway and I want to start subbing because I want to get some experience. What are some of the things that you tell them to do? Start reaching out to as many people as possible. Just you need to start forming those relationships because someone could take a chance on you. Someone could ask around and be like, Oh, you know, yeah, uh, they'll be great. You should give them a chance. And you never know. Like it, it could happen right away. It could take a little bit of time. Uh, but I tell them to do your homework. You know, you need to study that conductor cam. You need to listen to those parts. You need to write whatever it is in the score that's going to make you play that book perfectly. And everyone has their, their way of writing out their book. I always bring my own folder in. Some people use the music that that's there, but I always bring my own folder in because I have a shorthand for how I write a fill or how I write a groove or something. And you need to develop that for yourself to make sure that it's going to be perfect and consistent every single time. Being a sub on Broadway is not an easy task. Tell me about your experience being a sub and what people should know about subbing on a Broadway show. I think what people might not understand is that you're basically on someone else's schedule. Because you can't just be like, you know what, I'm I'm not going to do anything this whole week. I mean, you could, but then you could potentially be losing out on a lot of money. So you kind of always have to be available. And like you think about the holidays, like people that have chairs, you know, if you're able to sub out up to 50%. So like someone wants to take off around the holidays and guess what? As a sub, you're the guy around or girl, like you're the one that's around to play. And it's really tough because 
you can't really plan too much. I mean, I, I'm sure everyone you've talked to that has subbed has had stories of last minute things like an hour before, maybe even closer to that. Um, my wildest story was I was subbing Groundhog Day and I was in Denver at my parents' house. <clears throat> and I was supposed to fly home the next day. I was at Denver uh, with my girlfriend at the time and her father. And my phone kept ringing. It kept ringing. I'm like, oh my God, it's 530 in the morning. Like, who's calling me? And I was ignoring it. And then finally at 630, like it was nonstop. I looked over and it was Howie. And I picked up and it was a medical emergency. Like he, like he had this emergency and I'm like, I'm in Denver right now. And the other sub, there's only two subs because we were on stage for part of it and you had to have a put in. So you couldn't just have anyone go play the book. Um, the other sub was booked, couldn't get out of it, tried, couldn't do it. So I'm like, all right. I, I told my girlfriend, she's like, you got to fly. And I called Delta, got on a, 10 30 or 11 a.m flight got to laguardia about 4 30 and made it for a seven o'clock show what it's just sometimes i i don't know how many people would do that but i i just felt like okay i i have to do that he he needs the help and changed my flight and just flew back a day early dedication you know dedication and and that's what it takes i think people you could you've had more chairs than than me uh you could probably agree that you appreciate people that are dedicated or that are always available and uh, willing to help out, you know, be on hold. That's another one is that you'll get a text or an email from whatever. Uh, hey, can you hold this date? Like, okay, it's whatever a week out or two weeks out. And then you have to turn down other work because you already told someone you're holding that date. And there's just a lot of things, um, that you have to be very flexible with as a sub. Um, you know, getting notes. I know people have talked about getting notes on here and there's nothing wrong with getting notes. It, nobody wants you to fail. If you're getting a note, it's to help you. It's to help the music director, it's to help the rest of the orchestra, it's to help the show, people on stage, whatever, and it's to help you. Like no one is out to get you. And um, you just have to be be flexible and and other things. Oh man, getting paid is another one. Uh, we don't do. I I think very few shows do direct deposit. Uh, I think the only one was Moulin Rouge um, for me uh, was direct deposit. Even as a sub, because most of the time I think when you do rehearsals, it's paid separately. So I played paid through the shows LLC. While um, if you're doing just to show you're paid by the theater. Um, so as the sub, say you play a Wednesday or, a Thursday, you know, whatever, you get paid the next week. And if you're not in that week, they'll typically just mail the check. So then you have to wait potentially an entire another week to get paid for something you did two weeks ago. And that's tough because as a sub, like that's, that's what we're living on is that money. And you just have to, <laughs> again, you have to be flexible. You know, you can't be hounding in-house contractors like, where's my money? Where's my money? They got plenty to do. And trust me, like, you're going to get paid. It may just take a little bit longer than you thought. 
in the before times, before COVID, you could go just make your little trek, go to whatever theaters you're subbing at, go pick up all your checks, and that's it. Now it's a little harder because a lot of theaters, you need clearance. You need to have a negative test to get into the building, uh, and then you can go pick up your check. Um, so it's just, it's a little bit more difficult, um, especially if you're not in a lot. If you're not in a lot, period, like you could have one show where you're not in once every six weeks and you have to find a way to keep that show fresh either i don't know play through it once a week or just look at it um but it's a tough thing to keep up a show i mean just subbing a show is hard enough and then to like almost forget it because you're doing other things and then come back six weeks later and be like okay what has changed are there new actors is there a new conductor like there's a lot of variables that go into that. Uh, and then maintaining a bunch of books. Uh, I know Sean McDaniel, I think, has the, the highest number of shows at the same time. He He's insane. Uh, I know Joe Horshevsky has a lot at the same time. Joe Nero. The most I ever did was six. And <clears throat> that was plenty. I, I don't, I will never do more than that. So how did you keep those shows fresh yourself? Um, fortunately, at the time, I was pretty active on four of the six. Um, the one show uh, company had its moments. It was difficult, but it wasn't one that you needed to keep under your hand. Like You didn't have to get it all the time like you would something like Moulin Rouge or Mrs. Doubtfire or whatever, like some drum heavy books. Um, so that one was a little easier. And then the other one I was seven at the time was Little Shop, which has its challenges uh, technologically speaking, because we have to trigger the Ableton. Um, so that's the hardest thing there is you got to make sure that you're starting to click at the right time. Um, so again, that wasn't a drum heavy book. Uh, so that was a little easier to put away for a minute and then pull back out. Graduating, touring with Mamma Mia, meeting Ray through Danny, subbing at Mamma Mia on Broadway, and meeting Howie, subbing there. How'd you get a night with Janis Joplin and tell me about that show? That was through Howie. Um, and uh, that band was all from Portland. Oregon where the show originated so the drummer uh, Mitch Wilson didn't know a lot of people in town and so Howie recommended him to or recommended me to him and he called me and um, that was probably one of the hardest shows I've subbed just because it was an onstage band uh, the entire show had to be memorized so it was two and a half hours of they're Janis Joplin tunes, but still, you have to know what's up next. You have to know which tunes you're counting in, which tunes she's counting in, uh, tempos, you know, all that stuff. And we had to sing, which was, yeah, that was that was the hardest part. Are you a good singer? Not in that range. Uh, Mitch, I think, is definitely more of a tenor. 
and I had to rearrange some parts because it was too hard to sing that high up and play. Well, you know, I think, uh, what's the name of that song? Another piece of my heart. Yeah. Uh, don't you just have to say, take it and, and you that's, good. That's, take it, break <laughs> it, make it. That's it. <laughs> but that's all sung. It's not just shouted, I suppose. It's, it's all sung. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I'd fail. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll it's hard. Good. It is very hard. And I admire yeah. singing drummers, man, or singing any kind of instrumentalist that can sing, like Sting, the stuff that he does, and then, oh my god! Well, yeah, like going back, like going back, like Phil Collins, Don Henley, Karen Carpenter, like they all play and sing, and I don't know how they do it. Back to uh, <laughs> uh, Janis Joplin. So you did that for a while, and you subbing at Mamma Mia, then you went on a tour for Mamma Mia after Janis Joplin. Uh, I kind of wasn't doing too much and the opportunity to tour Matilda came up. So I took it because it was a first national and I didn't have anything going on. So I'm like, yeah, I'll go do it. And I toured that for 18 months, which that's a long time. <laughs> for I any was... of those people out there that tour. So tell me about the touring experience. I, I the last first and only show that I toured was a show called Footloose back in the year 2000. It's an introduction to Broadway and I thought it was great, but it was a non-equity tour. These first national tours are a whole different level. And tell me, like a typical week, how does it work on a, a Broadway tour? Uh, on a show like Matilda, uh, we only traveled to rhythm section, so then we would pick up locals. Uh, to play the two read books, the three horn books, and uh, you would have a key sub. Um, so we would get there, whatever, on a Monday. Monday night, we go load in. So I go set up all my gear. Uh, most of the time, I was remote because the booth was too big to go into the pit. And Tuesday morning, we would rehearse with the locals. We would rehearse from probably 10 to four or nine to four and then have a show that night. And you would do, depending on how long you're in the city, uh, I've done three months sit downs. I've done one nighters. I've done split weeks. It's, it all, all depends. The first national, you do have a lot more time, which is nice because then you don't have to pack up right away. You can kind of enjoy the city and, What's the best thing about doing a national tour of a Broadway show? You get to see the whole country. I mean, you did with Ain't Too Proud. You were in Berkeley and you were in L.A., right? And D.C., L.A., and, and Toronto. That, like, that's great. And, and you know what it's like to like just go and live in a town for a couple of months. And I've been fortunate through all the touring I've done. I've been to all 50 states. I've seen the whole country. I've seen most of Canada. Uh, and it's, it's a very cool thing. And I think it's something that people should do. I think you should go tour if you're young and, you know, you don't mind being on the road for a little bit. It's a good experience and it's, it's a, a good learning curve as well. And what's the downside to doing a national tour? Uh, you're not in New York. And you know 
if you're not in the city, you're probably not going to get called for things. You kind of get forgotten about because they need someone who's here now. You can't be like, well, I'll be back in three months. Show could be closed or yeah, I'll fill the spot to someone else. And that's definitely the downside. And you don't get, you can't sub out, you know, uh, unless you are, I mean, I had food poisoning once and I still played. Because uh, there's no, we don't have subs on the road. You can't just, I think in some situations they would call a local in to try and learn it. Um, but most of the time it's like, you got to go play. It's, it's night in, night out. Did you ever take vacation time? I did. Yeah. Uh, we, we were given two weeks vacation a year. So I would take a week off just to kind of reset. You also did the bodyguard, the musical. I did. Now that never came to New York. What was the the situation with that show? I think the book wasn't strong enough um, to come in. Deborah Cox was amazing. She was in the the lead role. She was fantastic, and the band was great. You know, you're just playing all those Whitney Houston tunes. Um, I, I think it was just a problem with the book that they didn't they didn't bring it in. Now, where did that tour and and was it well received? I believe it mostly was. It started at Paper Mill over in uh, New Jersey. And then, um, like I said, they were supposed to do only six months and then come into the city in the summer. But then I think it ended up touring for almost two years. And then that's, I don't think it's gone beyond that now. Are you in contact with anybody from that production? Do you know what's going on with it? I, I think it's done. I, I don't see them trying to rehash that unfortunately speaking of shows that are that are done tell me about groundhog day the musical which i i saw i saw once on broadway and i just found it fascinating how they did the the scene where they turned the whole stage around it was like the same thing the next day like how'd they do that fascinating i love that that was one of my favorite shows to ever play i thought the music was incredible it was funny uh and a great band and uh yes a hard book to play because you know he's recycling through the same day over and over again and in the music um you have day one day two day three and it's mostly the same but it's just ever so slightly different uh there could be a different time signature thrown in there just to kind of make it a little different uh, and then at the end, we go up for the 11 o'clock number, get in a groundhog suit, sit on stage on a turntable at a drum set, and you're playing. You got your uh, in-ears, and you're listening to the click, and you're playing as the turntables are spinning, wearing a groundhog suit. <laughs> so was it hot in that suit? Very. Did you get hazard pay for? (laughs) (laughs) It was was hot because uh, Howie Joins was the drummer, and I'm probably four or five inches taller than Howie, and so they built the suit for him. So whenever I would go play, you would see 
all of my neck. And it bothered someone. So I had to wear a turtleneck before I put the costume on. So I'd go upstairs, I would put on a turtleneck, then put the costume on, then put the head on so that it was all the same color. So after Groundhog Day, you took off the groundhog and put it down and the show closed, unfortunately, because, yes, it was a fun show. That was 2017, 2016. I can't remember. Yeah, I think they I think they closed in 2017. Um, and I didn't really have any work, just some cabarets and little things here and there at the time. And I was really, to be honest, I was kind of disillusioned with the whole business and not sure if I wanted to keep doing this because as people know that are trying to sub or have sub the amount of times that you get told no, or you get told oh, my roster's full or I'm not looking for anybody or I'll keep you in mind. It's a lot. And at that time there wasn't a whole lot new opening up and I think everyone was pretty set. And so I didn't have much coming in. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. It's just, constantly beating you down and um but i you know i stuck with it i i i think my wife she she pushed me and told me to stick with it and i did um and slowly a couple more things came in and um yeah i did king kong briefly that show lasted i think only nine months and that, um, that was warren Oates on that that was with Warren, yeah. How'd you meet Warren? Through Danny again, through Danny Gottlieb. He and Warren knew each other from way back when. And um, I reached out to Warren just to see if uh, he needed anybody, and he did. So I was very lucky to get in with him. You brought up something very interesting. Encouragement, perseverance, and disillusionment. Man, it should be a title of a, a post that I'm going to put up. <laughs> <laughs> because all of that can come into play in a, in a career in the music business. How do you navigate through the ups and the inevitable ups and downs of a life of a professional musician? It's, it's really, it's very difficult. And I think for the vast majority of people, um, maybe the time commitment is too much. And some people kind of just move on past it uh, because it could take years. It could take years to break through. It could take years to get that, that show. Um, and some people kind of give up on that. Uh, I think you have to have a lot of patience and belief in yourself that, yes, this is going to happen. I'm going to make this happen. And I, um, being married, you have to have uh, a lot of support. You have to have a very understanding partner because the, the time away, like I'm gone every night, gone almost all day on Saturday 
uh, almost all day on Sunday. It's a lot of time away and you need someone who's going to support you in that because you, they know you're pursuing your dream, your career, your passion. Um, so for someone just getting into this business, I could see where it could be. Um, what, let's see. I, I don't know. I, I guess I could see where it could be very discouraging because things don't happen right away. Um, but I would tell people if this is really what you want to do, uh, then you need to stick with it because it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done is be a musician. Well, I, I should take that back. I'm a father. So being a father is absolutely the most rewarding thing. Then getting to play music professionally is, is right up there. So then as someone that has held several chairs, how do you feel about people just essentially cold calling you, like sending an email out of nowhere or text or something like people that are trying to break in. And as you're doing this, this podcast and this, uh, <clears throat> this honestly, it's a great service for people to know what we do. Um, how do you feel about that? Like, oh, no, you're yeah. asking me a question. I like this. <laughs> well, well, yeah, because <laughs> as someone that has recently been having to do that, there's certainly an art form to it. You know, you can't just send out a mass email that's just essentially the same thing, like copy and paste, copy and paste, and just send out 50 emails. Um, so like what, what? I tell you one thing that doesn't matter to me is your resume. For me, I mean, uh, it's nice that you graduated from conservatory or, or Berkeley or Juilliard or, uh, USC, but I want to know, can you play? And of course, I want to know if you can read as well and follow a conductor. And if you're cool, all the things that, you know, everybody's talked about. So you just have to, you can reach out to people that way, but don't expect anything until, you know, you, you basically until you, your number is called, you know, follow up, be persistent, but don't be annoying. I would, I would follow up maybe once a month. So you get 12 yeah. times to reach out to somebody and just, you know, maybe comment on social media, but just, you know, be, be eager, be inquisitive, inquisitive, be confident in what you can do and be open to the possibility of a possible slot as a sub on a show, but realize that there are a lot of other people that are ahead of you. But if you're persistent and you're good and you find a way to maybe get in on another show off Broadway, like again, something like you did with Eric Brown and Smokey Joe's Cafe, you can be the drummer of Beetlejuice one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really, uh, it, it, I think it's important even for potential subs to hear, like there's a lot that goes into it. And I, I think for probably more than 50%, it's who you know. But then there are those people that, like you said, you could just reach out and be like, oh, you know what? Let me hear them play. L let's go from there. Like, there are those people that get that chance. And it, it's good for people to know what goes into this for finding subs. The only other thing I, I would I would say about being a sub that I, I hope, I really hope changes soon is that 
pre-COVID, you could essentially reach out to any drummer and 99% of them would be like, yeah, you can come watch. Like no intention of subbing, say it out there in the first email, which I said, like, I just want to watch you play. Like, I just want to meet you and watch you play. And that's something that doesn't happen now that the rules have changed. And I, I do hope that they go back because it's such a great way to meet drummers, watch them play the show, hear the other people in the show, meet other musicians. And now you're only allowed to come watch a book if you're going to sub, you know, and that's, that's a shame. And I, I do hope that changes because that's how I got to meet so many people is you just reach out. And again, with, I would say everyone knows that you do want to sub, but just say, you know, I'm not looking this. I just want to meet you. I just want to watch you play. I, I enjoy your play, whatever. And I, I hope that changes. I hope people can have that opportunity because it's just a, a great networking uh, tool for us. But reach out to people, you know, just find them. I would say, again, 99% of the people in this business are very nice, very friendly. Everyone wants to help each other. Sit down for a cup of coffee. Just introduce yourself. I mean, that's how I, that's how I started meeting people. It's just cold emails. If you could do your professional career over again, what would you do differently? Knowing what I know now about, especially uh, the musical theater business, I would come to school in New York. I, I would have moved up here right away. Why is that? If, if I knew this is what I wanted to do, because so many uh, teachers and professors and a lot of them play. A lot of them play in, in theater. A lot of them play gigs all around. And what better way, I know from my experience in undergrad, what better way to, to get broken into the scene than have your teacher say, hire the student of mine. They're great. They're going to do great. And I know a lot of kids now come up to NYU or Juilliard or Manhattan and they want to do theater. And it's smart because you are right in the middle of it from the get-go. You're not coming in cold. You know, you've already been introduced to people and that's the best way. So I think I, I would have come up here right away. But I guess you wouldn't have seen Boulder, Colorado. But I take that back. You probably would have by going on these tours. Yes, I, I would. Things would have been different. Maybe I would not have toured. I'm not sure. But yeah, no be, regrets, right? Being in the city, being in the place that you want to work is definitely ideal. Because like you said, out of, out of town, out of sight, and out of mind. And... Yep. If you're in town and you're connecting with people, then the chances are very high that you're going to get a lot more work, which leads me to Smokey Joe's Cafe. Because <laughs> we met through some, again, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, it's a lot about who you know. Yep. And I was looking for subs for my show that I had at the time, Ain't Too Proud. Eric Brown was one of my drum subs. He's been one of my main 
subs for every show that I've done since uh, Memphis the Musical. And uh, he was the drummer for Smokey Joe's Cafe. How'd you connect with Eric? Uh, I met Eric um, through Joe Bergamini. I had reached out to Joe about the show, getting the band back together. And that show wasn't, it was very short-lived, sadly. And, uh, but he introduced me to Eric because Eric was looking for some people for Smokey Joe's Cafe, which they had done up in Algonquit, and then they were bringing it um, off-Broadway. And um, I reached out to Eric, and we got together. I played for him a little bit, and he asked me to sub, and that's how I met Eric and subbed that show. And through Eric, I was fortunate to uh, meet you. Having those connections, you never know where they may come from or where they may lead. And some things come full circles, you know, some things go round and round. And But I'm so glad that we met because I was very glad to have you on the show. And when I'm gone, you want to, you know, when the drummer for the show is not there, you want to have somebody that can basically emulate your style and sound and dancers on stage won't be coming down the next day when you're back and saying, where were you? It's more like, well, you weren't here. Oh, that's great. Yep. And you definitely filled that role. And I appreciate all of your hard work that you put into the show. Thank you. I, I, I had a lot of fun. That was a great band. So ain't too proud. You subbing around different places. And that was in 2019. And Something happened in 2020. I can't remember, but anyway, you were also at Beetlejuice during that time, correct? Mm -hmm. In 2019. Then things happened, and now you... It's 2022. You started subbing back at uh, Beetlejuice. Yeah, when things finally returned, um, I was subbing Little Shop uh, because that was the first show to come back that I was subbing on and then um, with Dina Toriello with Dina Toriello um, and then I was just about to start at company before the shutdown so when that came back um, I got uh, in with Rich right away um, Rich R Rosenzweig Rich Rosenzweig <laughs> yes uh and then, you know, just little, little more things start coming in. You talk about uh, taking chances and getting these opportunities. Um, that December, I got a call from Michael Keller. It was right before Christmas, and I was just going to the grocery store. And he asked what I was doing next week. I'm like, well, it's Christmas. I'm like, I, I have a couple things here and there. He said, well, I've exhausted all my resources. The Wicked Tour is all out with COVID. He said, I talked to Matt, and he said that he gave you the book. And Matt literally gave me the book the day before this phone call. And this was like a Thursday. He said, can you fly out on Sunday and do the tour? I was like, let me call you back. <laughs> so I called my wife, and she's like, yeah, of course you have to take the opportunity. And uh, I was like, all right. I called Keller back and I said, let's do it. And I learned the show in three days and flew out to Cleveland and, and played for the week. 
It was wild. You know, I was about to ask you what was the most difficult show you've ever done. Was that it? Uh, I don't know if Wicked presents its own challenges because then I started subbing for Matt in the City. And that show is hard because the majority of it is not on click. You would think with some of these big dance things that, or like a, a pop rock tune that there would be click and there's not. I think it's only on maybe four or five uh, numbers. Um, but there's just so much to do. You have to be an orchestral player. You have to be a heavy rock player. You have to play uh, with some touch. And I mean, his his whole thing just wraps around you. He's got three triangles. You know, you've got a mark tree. You've got a bell tree. You've got all kinds of stuff. And it's just, there's a lot going on there. So that, that book is definitely challenging. Uh, that may be one of the hardest shows for sure. You were subbing around town. And in 2022, you had the opportunity to land your own Broadway chair. Now, being a sub is different from having your own show. Tell me what it was like getting that call. Say, you know what? I'm leaving. Do you want this gig? I'm still kind of uh, in awe of it because I just started two weeks ago. And it's just um, just that feeling of uh, all, all this work, all this time, 12 years I've been in this business and it finally happened. And I, and I finally made it to that point that I wanted to that. I have that credit. I have that chair. And uh, I guess it's like a level of respect that they go, okay, like he's ready. He's, he's going to do great at it. He, he's who we want. And uh, I've said this before. It's just very humbling to, to know that however many drummers there are out there that I was asked to do it. And, you know, as someone who's held a chair before, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> you know how hard it is. I mean, there's only what, 13 or 14 musicals going at a time. I mean, that's 13 or 14 jobs. That's it. And it's, we're very lucky when we get that opportunity. Having your own drum chair and having the situation where you need to keep your subs fresh. What do you do in order to maintain their uh, ability to come in and sub for you properly? Uh, I try to get... Depends on how many times I'm out. Like I will typically be out once or twice a week. Um, and I try to have a rotation going just so everyone's in like every couple weeks. Uh, and then I, it sucks because sometimes people are busy, you know, especially this uh, as we're getting into the holidays, like people are busy and I feel bad when someone's not able to get in more frequently, but it's also what we do and uh, it's tough. It, it, it's a tough balance. Yeah. If you're a good sub, You'll the word will get around and you'll be working a lot, which is not necessarily a good thing for the shareholder <laughs> because you want to yeah. get them in. And sometimes you might want to take off, but they're like working at other shows. So it's like it's difficult. One thing I used to do is I used to just plan ahead a month ahead and I would make sure that all of my subs were, like you said, in a rotation. 
And it was important for me, even though, you know, as a shareholder, you take a hit when you're not working because you don't get paid for that show. So you might be sitting home watching, uh, you know, reruns of uh, the Jeffersons or something. And (laughs) (laughs) I had to think of a funny old show, but (laughs) MASH. Jeffersons, All in the Family, MASH. Oh, I didn't know. I never watched MASH. Me neither. I haven't seen it, but everybody talked about how great it was. But anyway, yeah, you might be home watching Golden Girls or something, and you're not able to work. And, you know, but you're doing it to make sure that everything is run smoothly and you have people in there to help you out when you need them. Yeah. And um, as a sub, now having a chair, and then when the show closes, go back to being a sub, it's something that you appreciate when you can get in there a lot because you could have a week where you only have two shows as a sub. You could have a week where you're completely booked and it's, it's tough. And as you were just saying, like, it's a good and bad thing. Like it's everyone wants a bunch of shows to sub as a sub. Everyone wants to be busy, but then when you're not available, I haven't had this happen yet, but like I've been, sort of informed like when you're not available people just move on they're like oh he's not around like i gotta get someone else in and that's kind of like a it's good and bad you know it's good that you're working but then it's bad because then you're not going to be available for someone else um, no please please like it it is you know when you go in as a sub for that first time i i think what people uh people that aren't in this business don't understand is that we don't we don't have a put in I, it, and unless you're doing like groundhog day, we had a put in because we're on stage and like, you need that for safety, but you, know, you don't have a put in, you don't have a rehearsal with the band and the cast to make sure. No, that first time you play for an 8 PM show, that show's starting and it's not stopping. So you better be ready because like you said, there are, there's wigs, there's hair and makeup, which is wigs, there's uh, all the crew, there's stage management, there's light, there's sound, and then all the actors and actresses on stage, and all the regulars in the pit. I mean, everyone gets together eight shows a week to make that happen. And it's a really cool thing when you sit back and think, you're just this little cog in this giant machine. but that cog as a drummer could derail the whole thing. I mean, I'm sure you've heard plenty of stories and I've heard stories as well where it, it could go wrong. It could go very wrong, very quickly. And, um, you don't want to be that person. (laughs) I've made mistakes in my career. You know, luckily I haven't had any, any train wrecks as they call it on our uh, in our profession there was one time i remember when i was subbing for bill lanham at cats the last revival of cats (laughs) there was a time where you know the conductor would do this and i did my cymbal choke so loud but there was no cymbal choke at that particular moment in the show i don't know why i had this brain (laughs) (laughs) it's like mr mustafali I was like, oh my God, I, I, I shrunk down. 
tell me about your biggest mistake that you've made as a drummer on a show that you can look back and smile and it's like, okay, damn, that was stupid or that was embarrassing. Um, there's a couple. I can remember one time playing Matilda. I crashed uh, the cymbal so hard as I inverted it. <laughs> really? I crashed it. Yeah, because the opening is a concert bass drum. There's a suspended concert bass drum, and you're rolling it, and you go right into a crash. And I, I, I whacked that thing, and it inverted. So then there was no downtime for the first two numbers. Uh, so I just couldn't use that crash. And then after I had to, like, I took it off, and I popped it back. Um, recently, uh, this spring, it was right after my son was born. You know, you're exhausted as a first time parent. And I did company for a matinee and then I went and played wicked that night and I was exhausted. I just, I, I should not have done both. Um, but I missed some dances. I missed some big dances just cause I wasn't thinking. And I, I had a very stern talking to from the music director after that. And I was like, yep, I, I get it. I totally get it. I, that was my mistake and it'll never happen again. And those things happen though. Like you can't, like you said, you, you can look back and smile on it. You can't um, let those things take you down. Cause you know, like you'll make a mistake and you will never make that mistake again. I could promise you that especially in this business. Like, I'm sure you never choke that symbol there ever again. Nope. Nope. Too many mistakes. It means you're going to be out of a job. That's correct. <laughs> so um, when you sub, or even when, well, I guess really more when you sub, I guess it happens less if you are the chair holder. When you, you know, get calls to the principal's office <laughs> <laughs> and the music director says, hey, Josh, uh, on measure 32, could you play the snare more to the rim on the third lug? And you're like, wait a minute, how do you know exactly? Like, are you listening to what I'm doing? Like, how do you take notes from a conductor? No matter what they say, they're correct. And if they come and I would say 99.9% .9 of music directors are very encouraging and they want you to do well like no one wants you to go in and fail so when they come to you after the show and they say hey can i just give you a couple notes you it, absolutely you say yes and like you know what can i what can i fix what do you need and and they'll tell you where it is and just reassure them because they're doing it not only for you but they're doing it to make sure that the show sounds the same and operates like you said like you know, you need those fills, you need all that stuff to line up. And, and they're making sure that their show is, is well, is in good hands with you playing drums. So there's nothing malicious about getting notes. You just, you just have to graciously take them. And it's all constructive criticism. And if you can't take constructive criticism as a musician, then your teachers were way too nice to you growing up. Like, like you, you should be able to handle that. You got offered the drum chair for Beetlejuice a few weeks ago. And around that time, 
you got the notice that the show was going to close. I don't know what was it yep. before you got the offer or was it right after? It's like here, here's your job. Oh, guess what? We're closing. They announced uh, the week before I started, so I knew I was taking over. And then uh, a week before I started, they announced and like, you know, for people that watch the numbers and, and you see what a show is grossing, people try to guess and think, oh, it shows in trouble or it may not make it. And but you know what? I, it's fine. I don't, I'm, I'm happy for the job. I, I'm happy to have the full-time employment. I'm grateful to have a chair and, yeah, I'm just going to enjoy the hell out of these next 14 weeks because that's all you can do. You can't take anything personally in this business. Shows don't last forever. I mean, I was one point where I had six shows and then one went on a hiatus and one posted a closing notice. And I was like, okay, I'm down to four. And then I was down to three. I'm like, three is still very good. I'm, I'm happy to be working, but man, I was really busy and now nothing, but it's just the nature of this. And so you start out, you down. You start out being a marimbus. Now you are the drummer for Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No more marimba playing. I can't. <laughs> you put out the marimba and you put it in the, the glass, uh, break in case for emergency. <laughs> no, oh, I, I sold that. I sold that in grad school for cash. <laughs> <laughs> so before we got on the this call, I asked you if you have a website. You have no website. I do not have a website. You are on Instagram, though. I am on Instagram. And is that the primary way that people can see you, hear you, and connect with you if they wanted to? Yes. And if anyone is in the union, I'm in the union directory, which is where I uh, made a lot of contact with people. So I just, you know, we have that directory so you can just look people up. I have a couple more questions. Um, you took over for Shannon Ford at Beetlejuice. He had subs there already. Did you continue using the same subs that he had or did you bring in a new crew of people? I uh, used the same subs. And if you were, if one of those subs were to leave and get their own show and you needed somebody else, I don't know if you necessarily need them now, but if the show was running long, what kind of things would you be looking for, for someone that wants to sub for you? For that show in particular, um, it's an aggressive book. You have to play, uh, pretty hard, pretty aggressively. You have to play many different styles and you have to play with a click because 95% of that show is on a click and you have to bury it because the rest of that rhythm section, they put it right there every night and you need to play with them. Who else is in the uh, rhythm section? Uh, Conrad Korsh is on bass, John Putnam on guitar and Robert Morris on guitar. And Josh Samuels on percussion. Oh, man. Yeah, you can't mess up. No. no. <laughs> Conrad is great. So is John. Uh, and so is uh, They're all great. Josh, yeah. Do you have any things that, that you're working on outside of Beetlejuice? Any other uh, 
workshops that you're working on? Any musical projects? No, nothing at the time. Once this was coming in, I kind of decided I'm just going to focus on this for a while, especially having a six month old. I didn't want to spread myself too thin. So I said, you know what, I'll just, I'll focus on the show. And it, it's kind of a relief to not uh, be at the, uh, the will of someone else's schedule, you know, can make your own schedule. Finally. Congratulations on your, uh, on your success, finally getting a show and, and having that steady income. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And it's, I I do hope that people who are subbing or people who are, are trying to break into the scene that you stick with it and that you see that the vast majority of this business are, are really good people. You know, I, I've had more coffee dates with, with drummers and music directors than I, I can count. And everyone is just, everyone's just a good person. You know, they care about what they do. Most everyone also wants to help you. You know, they'll say, reach out to this person, do this, or very rarely will you get no response, you know, from an email. Um, but most people, everyone's just, they're good people and it's uh, a very special business that we're in as competitive as it is. And as high stress as it is, it's full of really good people. And um, I I think that's what most people uh, don't get to see that aren't in it is that, you know, familial aspect of it when you go in and, you know, everyone just friendly people ask how you're doing people ask how the family is i go in and people want to see pictures of the baby and it's like that that's amazing so. with all that said congratulations i wish your show would run as long as phantom <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> but there will be something else that happens down the road thank you i appreciate you taking time out of your fatherhood schedule because I know you got to go change a diaper in a few minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Ha- happy to do it. Or practice your, your 30 second notes. <laughs> nope. That, uh, no breaking glass there. Nope. <laughs> but anyway, it was nice seeing you and uh, nice talking very to good you. To see you. Nice to get to Likewise. know you as well. Thank you very much, Joshua. And I will see you soon. Thanks, Clayton. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page. You'll find more content that isn't featured on the podcast or on the Broadway Drumming 101 Instagram page. Make sure when you subscribe to the YouTube page, you click on the button to be notified when a new video is published. Be sure to visit our new shop at Merchandise broadwaydrumming101.com Thanks again for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. <laughs>